Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we are going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. I'd like to thank our sponsor, The Money Nerve, a financial resource that helps you have a healthier relationship with money. Do you feel shame around your past financial decisions? Do you feel alone in your financial struggles? Do you self-sabotage your potential financial successes? Do you keep making the same choices, expecting different results? The Money Nerve has just launched a new online course called The Course to Financial Freedom. To learn more, go to themoneynerve.com forward slash course. The Money Nerve has an offer to all Money You Should Ask listeners for a 25% discount on the course. Use code capital M, capital Y, capital S, capital A, 25, and start your course to financial freedom now. Again, to our sponsor, The Money Nerve. Thank you. So I'm excited today because I'm always excited and I always get yelled at, but I'm excited. Um, I have with me Dr. Gretchen Kubaki, uh, who has 25 years of experience as a healer and a psychotherapist. And she's developed a unique, integrative approach to health and healing that incorporates both mind and body, which I think we could call somatic. Yes. Possibly. Uh, She's written a couple of books, The PCOS Mood Code and Moving Through Grief, uh, which you can find on Amazon. And hopefully you'll tell us a little bit about those. And she has a practice in West L.A., but she also does Skype consultations with um, people internationally. So – that could be you, people. Listen up. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Paul. Gretchen. It's good to see you. Likewise. And we did color coordinate, even though nobody else can see that. Yes, we did color coordinate because that's that's critically important. So tell me about your two books. So I wrote two books in two years. The first one is the PCOS Mood Cure, and it is all about the psychological aspects of working with polycystic ovary syndrome, which is the primary cause of female infertility. And the other book is called Moving Through Grief, and it's a step-by-step, more of a workbook kind of approach mm-hmm. to do-it-yourself grief work and um, getting through difficult things. So not just when someone has died, but when you have something that you've lost a job or you've lost a relationship or whatever else. So that's a very short, practical, easy book. And then the PCOS one is obviously for a special group of people. And would you say with grief that uh, that sometimes it's underrated? Like, in other words, people don't uh, people don't realize the importance of grief. I think yeah. sometimes it can be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I lost my cat. Um, I think that it's not underrated, but I think it's under acknowledged as being yeah, as important go. as it is. So, especially in that example of losing your cat. Um, Pet grief, pet pet loss is one of the biggest things. I find it to actually be a lot more intense sometimes than losing human life, especially for people who are a little bit more loners and their pet is their everything. Um, So the rest of it, though, I think we also tend to say, well, get out of your victim stance and, you know, get over it and get on with your life. I'm more about let's hold this, you know, let's have the sadness, the grief, the fear, the loneliness, the anxiety And let's keep identifying what is important to be moving towards in your life. So perfect example is what we're doing right now, which is that we're in the middle of a, of this big episode of pandemic. And at the same time, we are having this interview and providing useful information for people and 
creating something lasting. Yeah. And so how are you dealing with that? And how do you deal with, uh, I mean, I don't know if there's anxiety, but certainly cash flow has changed. Spending Mm -hmm. habits have changed. Like how has it personally impacted you? So personally, I'm still seeing most of my clients online um, through a secure telehealth platform. So it's, it is every bit as confidential as therapy normally would be. It's just that we do it exactly like this. So I use a different system to record things. Um, but we have video sessions. And for some people, I have telephone sessions. And so that's something where, for me, cash flow has maintained relatively steady. It's definitely dropped. Um, but I'm okay because I tend to be a person who is more conservative fiscally anyway. So I was not overwhelmed by this. Although, of course, I'm not happy about going from a great place to an adequate place. Right. Right. So one of the questions that I'm curious about, because I've had this experience with some of my clients who are, uh, psychotherapists Mm -hmm. and healers, uh, this this thing about uh, this guilt about asking for money yes. for services and being able to take somebody through a deep process and then say that'll be one hundred and fifty dollars or two hundred and fifty dollars mm-hmm. and do you find that difficult and why do you think that is I think it's really hard for therapists in general because we are altruistically motivated we are you know wired to be the helpers and that we should be the people who step in when things are difficult and a lot of times when things are difficult it means that cash flow is down and so we get pressured a lot to not ask for a lot of money we get people who are critical and say well you're just sitting there talking to somebody and ignoring all of the years of grad school and thousands of unpaid hours and all of those things that go into getting to this point So I think it's the lack of business skills that most therapists are operating with. For me, I came from a business background prior to becoming a psychologist. So, uh, and I've owned my own business, like a small side business for many years uh, before this and when I was starting in it. So for me, there's always been this idea of I can't effectively deliver services to people who need them if I also can't keep a roof over my head and feed myself and take vacations to refresh myself and get professional training and, you know, hire you to do my taxes so I don't have to stress (laughs) out about it. (laughs) I need money for all of those things. So for me, in the very beginning, I think there was a little bit of like um, that feeling of an imposter syndrome. It's like, wait a minute, they're going to they're going to pay me this much to do what? And you get over it or you don't get over it. But I worked very hard to get over it. And I really would practice doing things like old school, looking in the mirror affirmations of you know, I am worth charging at the time $175 an hour, you know, trying it on so I could say it confidently. I charge $200 an hour. I charge $225 an hour, that sort of thing. And it's it's a a process, definitely, that I think that people need to do. And I think people, therapists in general, I think, need to learn a little bit more about business, even though it does sound scary on the surface of it, because it's kind of basic principles once you get going. Yeah. Absolutely. And did you have support from your parents, like growing up, did you have money-minded folks that would point things out or were you kept in the dark? Like how was it growing up around money? I think I had a fairly unusual situation in that my father died when I was 13 
and my mom kind of fell apart after that. And so she actually handed over management of the family checkbook and bill paying process to me when I was 13 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's, and I was very painfully aware of the fact that we didn't have money. We were waiting for some insurance money to come in. How do you juggle those bills? What sort of uh, food substitutions do you do to make do? You know, we had a lot of potatoes and rice and that sort of thing. Um, But I learned that when my mom got a job pretty quickly, you know, that there was a limited amount of money to go around. And so there was definitely the idea that this has to be carefully balanced and budgeted. Um, I also learned some bad habits from her, which was, you know, my father was more of the spendy one. She was more of the conservative one. But after he died, she decided that it was time to indulge a little bit. So you know, I think we do definitely get very strong money stories from and through our parents and those experiences. But mine is that you've got to work hard for it and it doesn't matter what you have to do for it. So I did everything from, you know, work at a fast food restaurant across from an equestrian center, shoveling horse poop yep. uh, <laughs> you know, to, to being an Avon lady on a bicycle when I was 14 years old to working in an office. And so I've always had this mindset, like if I have a story, about it is you've got to work really hard. And sometimes I've had up to five jobs. Um, So I also have a strong belief, though, that I have a lot of capacity, uh, practically speaking, to get through just about anything and that I do have the, the emotional resilience to pivot as needed. So again, this example of I had an in office practice. Now I've got an office at home and I'm doing this. Yeah. And what do you uh, what do you not like to spend money on? Ooh, (laughs) that's a good question. I don't like spending money on boring, practical things like a new air conditioning system or tires for my car or that sort of thing. (laughs) That that is really annoying to me. Okay. And where do you indulge? Where do you not worry about it? Yes. Um, You know, I don't think I worry about money that much, generally speaking. My indulgences are definitely clothes, shoes, jewelry. Um, The side business that I used to have many years ago before I was a psychologist was jewelry design, for example. So that is something that's fun for me. It's a creative outlet and it's play. I'm also, relatively speaking, a foodie person. I don't do a lot of eating out, but when I do, it's not going to be just grabbing some fast food. It's going to be a really nice dinner with a friend. Um, And I pretty much have an unlimited grocery budget. So whatever I feel like playing with is, like, I don't even think about it for the most part. Yeah. Do you budget? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So busted. <laughs> I keep a beautiful spreadsheet on Excel that I have done for, I don't know, 20, 25 years probably. I have all the receipts in yes shoe boxes. And I track uh in retrospect. I budget sort of mentally loosely. Like I know it's X numbers of dollars for housing, you know, approximately how much I spend on food every month, how much I might spend on clothes, um, that sort of thing. But in terms of saying, oh, I'm only allowed to spend, you know, $100 on this per week or $20 on the other thing per month. No, not really. I find that overly restrictive. Yeah, but I think once you have a comfort level, it makes it a little easier not to be so 
into the nickels and dimes. Yeah, although it's right. kind if of... You're, if you're not living check to check. Yes, absolutely. I do like the nickels and dimes. Um, I do my spreadsheet literally down to the penny every month, and that's yeah. kind of calming and relaxing for me, uh, which I know is also a little bit unusual. But I think it yeah. is useful to know precisely where it's going. So, for example, in my business, a place that feels like there's a lot of money going out is that I also do some social media things and I have a virtual assistant. I have these posting accounts that are subscription fees monthly and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of little stuff like that where you don't see the money directly, but it is going all the time. And so those are the things that you've got to be mindful of and wear a budget or you know, having that active engagement with your numbers on a regular basis is really helpful, I think. Do you have any uh, financial regrets? Hmm, financial regrets, yes. I would say that the $400 that I cashed out from my 401k when I was like 23 and got laid off. Oh, wow. <laughs> and promptly went and spent on shoes. Uh, I would say that that is more of a symbolic regret because it's it's sort of emblematic of me not having my head entirely together around things when I was in my 20s and maybe even into my 30s and thinking more in survival mode and just getting from one place to the next and relying on my skills to generate cash. So it, it wasn't... It wasn't part of a big, thoughtful approach. So that that's like a huge regret. Also, the fact that I didn't hire a financial planner until I was 40, I think, was a mistake because although I don't necessarily follow directions entirely about, <laughs> about these things, I think that having the background, the awareness, the knowledge of it uh, earlier in life would have been better for me, for sure. Yeah. And what turned it around so that at 40, you decided, I'm going to get a financial advisor? Like what changed from the 20s and 30s of impulsively cashing out uh, pension money early to, <laughs> oh, I want to be fiscally responsible? I think turning 40 kind of hit me hard in a weird way. And, the, and that unexpected way was, oh, wait a minute, there's a whole lot more life ahead. And theoretically, a whole lot more of it's going to be retired life. And how do I pay for that? So I'd been putting money into, at that time, a 457 program through work. It was kind of automated. But I spoke to a friend of mine who uh, was a much higher earner than I was at the time. And he told me that according to his financial advisor, he was 98% of the way prepared for retirement. And only, wow. yeah. <laughs> and he was only a few years older than me. And I thought, well, I want to be 98% prepared for retirement by the time I hit my mid to late 40s. That sounds great. And so I asked him for a referral and got the financial planner and went from there. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And what would you say is the best financial advice you ever got? Uh, Maybe besides getting this referral or the 98%. That, that was helpful. I think um, automation of savings, I think, is a really profound tool. Um, I think what you don't see, you don't have as much likelihood of spending. So I started sweeping off a good percentage, you know, maybe starting at 10% of my income and heading up towards about 20% of my income back at that time to really start building up and being able to have access to a pool of funds to start doing a little bit of investing in the stock market. And that I think has been pretty magical, like to just have that. And I still do that with other money that I have that it just, it gets 
automatic deposit or automatic transfer over to the investment stuff. And it's a separate account so the money can't flow back to cover overdraft? Um, yeah, it goes to an entirely different agency and person who manages it. My my financial planner now gets the money. Um, so yeah, it's not something like that. For business, though, I do keep two accounts. I keep a, a checking account and a savings account. And what I do every week is I tally up my my receipts, my session earnings for the week. And I take a certain percentage and I set that into the savings, the business savings account, both of which are very easily accessible. I can move money back and forth via the app. Uh, But I'm also, I tend to look at that as like, okay, that's the savings. That's going to go when I get hit with a tax bill. If I, you know, earn more than I did last year, or if I need to pay out a a shareholder uh, dividend, then I have that money sitting there to pay for that. Now that makes sense. I when I first started really working towards savings, I had like six or seven, you know, Capital One and Orange mm-hmm. Account and Im- Immigrant Bank and all that stuff. So that even at twenty five bucks coming out every week from different accounts, it builds up pretty quick. It does. And if it's like you say, if you don't see it, mm-hmm. it's not there. And then it was easier to get excited of saying, oh, I could live without this money. Mm -hmm. Oh, let me do more. Let me do more. And then it got me on a snowball effect of seeing how much I could get into that account. Right. How quick I could build it up. Yeah, it's kind of playing games with yourself. So one of the things I do in health psychology a lot of times is work with behavioral health issues. So, you know, how do you get motivated to take better care of your diabetes or start exercising or whatever? And human beings are funny. You know, we're very responsive, even as sensible adults to kind of the gaming or the reward. So like I had a doctor who wanted me to lose weight and she gave me a shiny brand new penny when I would lose a pound. If I lose three pounds between visits, I get three pennies. Okay. Based on what I earn, three cents is nothing. Based on what any of us earn, it's nothing. But the motivation that was built into those shiny pennies in my hand was pretty intense. And so you can do the same thing. Like I have an app uh, through personal capital where I've loaded in all of my accounts and one touch of a button, I can look and see what's my total net worth. And Mm -hmm. that is really motivating to try to do things, you know, no, I don't want to buy that thing. That's going to drop that, you know, increase the balance on my credit card. So then the the net worth number drops. I mean, it's, it's much more volatile, obviously at the moment. Yeah, Um, but it's fun and it's engaging and it keeps the money real, even though it's out of touch, because I would have to do something pretty inconvenient for all of those things to get my hands on them at this moment. So. Well, so talking about pennies, if you're Mm -hmm. walking down the street and you see a penny shiny or not, will you pick it up? Yes, absolutely. Except for now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe not right now. But and why will you pick it up? I think it's a kid thing. I will see the penny and I'll say to myself, see a penny, pick it up all the day. Have good luck. Okay, and then I put cool. it in my pocket or my purse. Ah, and I, it cool. sort of makes me happy. And, you know, I don't know. It, I think there's good energy that goes along with that. It sort of sets me up in a mindset of there's abundance in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm all about picking up pennies and nickels and quarters oh, yeah. and $5 bills. Uh, absolutely. Because they're down there. 
You know so. what? If if they're down there, like it's all spendable and no, it's not going to radically change my lifestyle to pick up a penny, but I do think it is more of that it makes me happy and it reminds me of being a cat, a kid, you know, when a penny actually did matter because you could buy candy with it, right? You could. You could. <laughs> now, did you always buy your candy? Did you ever as a kid like sneak a piece of candy out of the drugstore or <laughs> Sneak a dollar out of your mom's pocketbook? I never took money from my mom. I was always really industrious. Like, I was the one who was running around asking the neighbors for their empty soda bottles so I could take them back and, you know, get the two and a half cents or whatever it was at the time. Um, I stole a packet of note cards out of like a, a five and dime kind of store one time and got marched back there to apologize and beg forgiveness for my sins. So ah, how was that? <laughs> Completely humiliating and one of the absolute <laughs> worst experiences of my entire life to that point, for sure. <laughs> and what did you take from it? Like, um, what did you what did you learn? What did you cultivate at that age? Being more aware, because it was actually something that was it was like something cool, little note cardy things. But part of the name of them was free. And I had confused. I thought it meant like that the cards were free. So I took them. Like, I don't recall feeling sneaky about it. Right. Uh, but I didn't understand that it was, you know, something free uh, and that I had to pay for it, even though it had the word free on it. So right. it was something where it really made me uh, cautious when somebody uses the word free. For sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be careful of read all the fine print. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I was, yeah. I was, pro I want to say I was maybe like five or six when I did that. Um, mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, harsh lesson. Ouch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when did you realize like money had value? Like, obviously, you started collecting bottles early, but was there a moment where you said, wow, if I have a lot of this, I could do some stuff? Hmm. Probably, probably that started connecting in when I was maybe 10 or 11, 12, somewhere in there, probably 10 or 11, uh, yeah. when I started babysitting and ah. would get money that was meaningful. So I think at the time my allowance was something like $1.25 a week and okay. I could make you know, $5 or $7 or $11 or something like that from a night of babysitting or an afternoon wow. of babysitting, which was a lot of money. And I remember going with my friend uh, to, we went to the premiere of Greece and went to Tower <laughs> Records and I was able to buy the double album wow. from Greece with my money. And that oh was where I thought, okay, this is this is cool. I can get the stuff I want if I have money. That's cool. Now, did you buy an album? Or at that time, I think you might have been able to buy a, a what's that? What's those? <laughs> oh, the eight track. Eight track. Eight track. <laughs> I think those were out about that time. They were, and I I had the album. I've only ever purchased two albums in my life. One was Saturday Night Fever, and one was Grease. <laughs> Uh-oh, so John Travolta thing going on here. Apparently. Apparently. <laughs> but yeah. And, <laughs> that's funny. Mm. Um, see, it's it's. I never wanted to buy the eight tracks. I never wanted to buy records or cassettes because I felt like every time I'd get something, they would change the technology. Uh-huh. And so 
my frugal part was like, no, no, no I'm going to wait till they come up with one technology that never changes, and then I'll buy everything. And so, because now I look back, I'm annoyed. I have cassettes, can't mm-hmm. use them. I've got records, can't use them. I don't have any eight tracks. <laughs> I never. Eight tracks were not very stable technology. I don't think there's a lot of them around. They're not. And even, um, and then, you know, you buy the CDs and now it's all digital. So you don't right. even get those anymore. Um, yeah, I'm about saving my pennies. So, <laughs> but technology keeps advancing. It does. So that's actually an interesting thing because I'm looking at, you know, I should get rid of all of these CDs. They're, you know, all available electronically, but a lot of people have a huge passion around that. They've collected many, I don't know if you remember laser discs. Yes. There used to be a huge store um, on Ventura Boulevard in the Valley that sold nothing but laser discs. And that's a business that just completely died. You know, it was not able to adapt or, you know, something better technology wise came along. Yeah. And I just wish they would all agree on one technology. It would just make life easier. That would be so much easier and so nice. I actually have, I think, four different headset pieces going on for my Apple equipment right now because they're varying ages and configurations and need this and that adapter. And I'm sitting here going, this is really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I always get upset with a new phone because then now my head's, my headset doesn't work. Right. New adapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in the past. <laughs> A little bit. I'm I'm with you. I've still got the CDs going in my car. All right. And what do you, um, what, what money beliefs do you have now that you still have from childhood? Like some things may have changed, Mm -hmm. but are there certain things that even as a kid, you remember, like you pick up the penny, Mm -hmm. um, but is there anything else where there's an under, uh, underlying theme of, I must behave this way with money that came from childhood? I think there's probably a lot of underlying themes that come from childhood when it comes to money. I think probably the first one that comes to mind is that you have to work hard to get it and uh, be very industrious and be willing to do whatever it takes. Um, You know, so if that is the five jobs or it's working till midnight or, you know, working through your weekend to get something done because you promised it was going to be finished or that sort of thing is, Mm -hmm. I think, still powerful. So it it keeps me from doing something that maybe has a bigger payback in an ongoing sort of way. So the kind of stuff we talk about in terms of, say, passive income. Right. Um, you know, like I angsted extensively over my first book and had a lot of life disruptions as well when I was writing it. But now it continues to sell, you know, not massively, but it continues right. to sell on a consistent basis. So there's a little bit of money that comes in. That's an example of something that's a bigger thing. Um, you know, can I make this mm-hmm. quantum leap from, you know, I earn by the by the hour to you know, like, oh, I stand there and speak and get paid $50,000. No, I have not made that leap. Although, do I believe that that's possible? Sure. Yeah. And how do you, like, is there anything that you do consciously to start to let go of the belief that I have to always work hard? Or is there a place where, well, it serves me well to a degree, but if I could take away 20% of that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely have worked very consciously on that. So back in the day when I was training and I was working seven days a week in terrible areas and situations and late at night and things like that, um, a friend spoke to me and said, you know, 
is this the life you want to have as a professional when you're licensed? And I said, no, this is a horrible lifestyle. <laughs> and she said, well, how do you think you're going to get to the lifestyle you want as a psychologist if this is what you keep doing? Wow. Yeah. She's a good therapist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I started consciously reshaping my life then. So I cut out the Sundays and then I cut out the Saturdays and, you know, then I cut out evening appointments except for one or two nights a week for clients who've been with me for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, so I reshaped and I decided I don't have to fit someone else's parameters. You know, I can choose the hours I want to work. I can choose the types of people I want to work with. I can, I can choose different things about this. And so consciously deciding is I think an, an ongoing act because there's always going to be a lot of pressure. And I'm sure you know this too, as an accountant, Oh, can't you just squeeze me in? Like, you know, we've still got right. three days before April 15th. Right. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> your crisis is not going to be my crisis. Right. It's, it's hard to sometimes not let that happen. It's really hard. And especially when you're a small business owner, you know, to say no to someone or something that is going to um, improve your bottom line. But I think what it does is it erodes your quality of life and that is yeah. not worth it. And definitely as I've gotten a little bit older, I have learned that I can feel safe and part of the safety, of course, is having constructed that that net of, you know, I do have savings. I do have an excellent credit score. So if there, you know, is a bigger crisis, I could put things on my credit cards if I wanted to. So yeah. having, I, I think that's also something left over from childhood is that I have, I don't just have plan A and plan B. I've got plan C, D, E, F, and G going yep. in my head. So and I'm very resourceful um, yeah. around those things and implementing what I need to do to be strategic about staying stable. And that's kind of all part of the the tool set of how do you bring yourself back to center when things are in chaos around you? Um, you know, we're getting a very big life lesson in that right now. I, as you're talking about that, I'm wondering, and I realize, I know this is true for me, but do you ever sometimes realize, oh, I actually have it better than I think I have it? Like... Do you know what I mean? In other words, like sometimes I'll look at somebody, I'll go, oh my gosh, they have two houses mm -hmm. and they've got this and that. And then I go, oh yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. I forget, like, I forget yeah. that like I've built all these things. Every now and then I let myself, you know, get into a bit of a pity party about what's going on with, you know, the difficulty in business or my health problems or, you know, friendships or relationships or whatever. And then I think about in the money sense. I'm, I am very conscious of my privilege. It is also very hard work and I have earned what I have, but I am well aware that I'm certainly like, you know, in terms of the world's population, I'm in the top 10% of, you know, I own a house. I have more than enough food every day. I have a right. car and gas in it. Um, you know, all of those things that are actually uh, not available to many people in the world. I mean, some in some parts of the world, there's not even clean water. So, you know, right. those are the sorts of things where I stay conscious, too. Like, that is something where I donate a lot of money is, like, into, you know, water funds. Because I, I love water. <laughs> Water's cool. <laughs> I like know. water. So, yeah, I, I stay conscious of that. But it is easy to forget sometimes, especially in a place like Los Angeles, because we are surrounded by so much wealth. And, yeah. um, 
you know, a lot of, of um, very obvious displays of wealth. And it's, it's hard sometimes to remember that you're actually doing really well because you've got a house and a car and a job. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I know we're getting close to the end here. Um, one of the things that I've, that I've really heard you say throughout uh, this conversation is about being conscious mm-hmm. and about being intentional mm-hmm. and really like really thinking about and taking action, whether it's a mindset belief or wanting to work less that it's not something that just happens by sheer luck, but that you need to be consciously looking and evaluating. Yes. Yes. And I I think that's where, you know, looking at that thing, going back to when I was 40 and decided to start doing some financial planning stuff. I think a lot of times what happens is people are just sort of head in the sand about these things. I happen to be very comfortable with numbers and love numbers and money and tracking and those sorts of things. An awful lot of people aren't, and particularly in my work category of therapists, I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, the math stuff, eh, you know, I'm having anxiety. Let's not talk about it. I don't yeah. want to talk about money. And I'm like, well, we have to talk about money every day. <laughs> all day we're dealing with money. It's there all the time. <laughs> it's, it's kind of inescapable. Um, and so, yeah, be conscious about it, learn to embrace whatever the difficulty is around it and figure out what it is that is actually valuable for you. So, you know, I don't care about having some sports channel on my cable package, but I really care about being able to feel free to buy whatever I want at the grocery store most of the time. Yeah. That's my choice. Maybe that's not your choice. Okay, great. Fine. We're, you know, we all make our own choices. Priorities, whatever's important to each mm-hmm, of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been awesome uh, chatting with you about money and all that. I, I love that you appreciate the emotional component absolutely. of money. Absolutely. Because a lot of people are always uh, surprised when I say that I believe money and emotions are very much tied together. And they'll be, oh, no, no, it's money's money. Oh, they're very oh. tied together. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been awesome. Where can people find you on social media? They can find me all over the place. Um, Ask Dr. Gretchen with A-S-K-D-R Gretchen is my handle um, on uh, Twitter when I go there. <laughs> yeah. uh, also on Facebook, I'm all over the place under the name PCOS Wellness, PCOS Psychology. You can look up just my name and you'll find a bunch of stuff on me. I have a couple of different websites and you'll find out everything you ever wanted to know. Well, there it is. Check out Dr. Gretchen and check out her books on Amazon.com. Um, don't forget to share the love. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money Money You Should Ask, all one word. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. Um, Gretchen, Dr. Gretchen, it's so great to have you. Thanks again, and uh, stay safe. Thank you. You too. 